just want to make sure this works. Okay. So we're here today to talk about. Okay. We're here today to talk about rescheduling of CBD and maybe even descheduling of CBD. Um, and, and the various ways that that may or may not happen in the, as soon as this coming week, potentially. Um, I, before we dive into the specifics, though, I, of course, want to welcome uh, the panel here today that's going to help marshal us through this conversation. I'm going to briefly introduce you guys, and then I'll just pass the mic around so you could tell the audience a little bit more about yourselves. Starting at the far left, we have Rod Kite from Asheville, North Carolina. He's at the firm Kite on Cannabis. From Denver, Colorado, we have Tui Vu. And then we have two people from Seattle here, Heidi Ernest from Cultiva Law and Orion Inskip from Gleam Law. As Adam said, I'm David Kramer. I'm an attorney in Los Angeles at the law firm Vicente Cedarberg. We focus exclusively on cannabis and hemp issues. I myself spend a good chunk of my time on CBD and, uh, and hemp-related uh, compliance and corporate work. Um, maybe, Rod, if you can just start and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself before we dive in. Sure, and I'm going to grab the mic. I understand it might be a little bit hard to hear, and, and I'm personally a little bit hard of hearing because of playing in a rock band for a lot of years, so excuse me if I'm yelling, and I hope that you can hear me all right. Um, my name is Rod Kite. Um, as David said, I'm an attorney. Um, my business is focused on and um, exclusively um, representing clients in the cannabis space. Uh, predominantly for my practice, that is the hemp and the CBD sector. Uh, we focus on a wide range of, of issues um, in the legal space, primarily with compliance and helping our clients navigate the, the rapidly evolving um, um, landscape as it pertains to hemp and CBD. So I look forward to speaking with you. Good morning. Um, can you hear me okay in the back? No? I need to talk louder. Is this better? Okay. Um, my name is Tui Vu and again I'm from Denver, Colorado. Um, I was previously the lead marijuana and foodborne illness investigator for the city and county of Denver, so I led the way for regulatory enforcement of cannabis in Colorado. Um, I worked for the city for five years and then I went on to work in the industry. So I worked in both the marijuana space and industrial hemp. And currently I am the Chief Compliance Officer and Director of Regulatory Affairs for Hammer Enterprises, which is a vertically integrated industrial hemp company in Colorado. Um, in addition to that, I actually go around and I train other regulators on what to inspect and what to look for when they're conducting inspections for different marijuana or industrial hemp type operations all the way from cultivation to finished products. Hi there, uh, I'm Heidi Ernest. I'm from Seattle at Cultiva Law. Uh, I'm first and foremost a litigator, so my primary role is to uh, object to a lot of the conduct that is done under other direction and to try to uh, really make sure that the action that's being done by regulators and enforcers is really complying with the letter of the law and also the uh, structures that exist among all the different parties. So for example, there are certain directives with respect to CBD that conflict it's my job to take a look at which uh, law really preempts which law and then go to the court and ask the court for relief and in that way win cases for my clients but also send a message to these enforcement agencies that they need to reel themselves in or do things the right way. So while I am a litigator, I'm very protective of the industry, very protective of, of my clients and I look forward to helping you all expand particularly under uh, some of the really exciting stuff that's coming down under the 2018 Farm Bill. So. Uh, please feel free to hit me up after this panel as well with any specific questions you might have. 
uh, Orion and I are sharing a booth outside. And I'm Orion Inskip. I'm originally from Moab, Utah, but currently out of Seattle. Uh, I have 28 years in the military. I was a, a aviator and then went to law school, became a JAG officer. When I came off of uh, my military time, my friend had a IP, marijuana and cannabis IP and uh, trademark firm. And he wanted to move over to the litigation side. So I came in after being a JAG to be his litigator. And that was about a year ago. In that year, as we've seen this explosion in the in the market, especially in the CBD world, where um, it's it's basically everywhere, I think. Everywhere you look now, there's CBD. So uh, th there was a, a void, and I just moved right into that. So that's where we're at. Thanks. Great. Thanks, everybody. As you guys are soon going to see, and we're, we're very lucky to have the four people on this panel here today. Uh, typically, when we've done these in the past, uh, they've been in parts of the country that are a little bit more, I would say, uh, developed as far as their CBD programs and their regulatory regimes. Uh, I know that's not necessarily necessarily the case here, so we're excited to, to watch the industry sort of uh, continue to explode and grow in this part of the country. Um, today we're going to sort of divide the talk into to four parts. Um, and I just want to give a brief overview here so you can know what to expect, and then, and then we'll, jump, we'll jump right in. The first part of today is going to be about how CBD is currently scheduled. Um, and, and how the DEA and FDA sort of view CBD. Uh, and we're going to sort of start that conversation with the DEA's recent actions regarding Epidiolex and what that does and doesn't mean. Hopefully that's familiar to some of you. If not, we'll, of course, explain that a bit more. Um, the second part of the talk is going to move on to the FDA and uh, what the FDA, the FDA's position is with regard to various products on the market, whether it's food, drugs, dietary supplements, or cosmetics. Um, as you'll see, that is potentially the most problematic aspect of the space, even though the 2018 Farm Bill is expected to pass. Which brings me to the third point, uh, the 2018 Farm Bill. What that does mean and what it doesn't mean for CBD, and what we expect the final language of the bill, which could be released as soon as Monday, uh, to, to say and not say. And then finally, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to talk about how some states have taken uh, call to action and sort of deviated from what the federal law might say uh, and have developed their own pretty comprehensive systems uh, for CBD and hemp. And we're going to focus uh, specifically on the states that we're from. Uh, uh, Twee's going to talk about Colorado. Orion and Heidi are going to chime in about Washington. And if there's time, I'll, I'll fill you in on what California is doing, which is, uh, as you might expect, quite frustrating and, and very California. So um, with that in mind, <clears throat> excuse me, let's start with uh, Epidiolex and how the DEA has cu currently schedules CBD. And I'm going to turn it over to Orion. If you can uh, just start a little bit about what the Epidiolex rescheduling me uh, means for CBD and, and more importantly, really, what it doesn't mean. Okay. So uh, if you don't know, Epidiolex is the first drug that's been approved by the FDA uh, that, that is derived from cannabis. So it's the first actual cannabis-derived drug. When, when that happens, when the FDA takes a drug that is on, on the schedule that's a controlled substance, um, they, the DEA, through the Department of Justice, has 90 days within which to remove it from Schedule 1 to something else. So within that 90-day period, you know, we, we were all excited to see, you know, first off, we had, had Apodiolex get approved. That was a, kind of a big shift in the world of cannabis, um, the medical marijuana side. It, it doesn't help most of our clients 
but it is a big shift. I mean, it's 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 a, a game changer as far as the very first time now after you know, 40 plus years of fighting this fight to have a drug that is actually approved by the FDA. Um, but the DEA then had that 90 days within which to remove it from Schedule 1, because Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act is something that's so heinous and so bad that you can't really use it as a drug. You, you aren't going to be able to go out and get a prescription for it. So in order for it to be prescribed, it, it, in order for it to have a medical use, it now has to be removed from Schedule 1. So they, uh, based on the FDA and the Department of Health, the, the FDA and the Department of Health did a, a, a very large report and they went through and did even the abuse potential. And their opinion under all of that study that they did was the abuse potential was very, very, very low and that it should be at the lowest schedule, if not descheduled and taken a, a, off of the schedule altogether. Well, the DEA operating in their typical um, conservative fashion left it at in the schedule, but at schedule five. So it's at schedule five. But again, very conservative here. They only descheduled Epidiolex, not CBD, not anything else cannabis oriented just Epidiolex. And that's problematic for those of you that are in the CBD world because if you're trying to sell something that is CBD, you may run up against the FDA saying, no, that's Schedule 5 and it only GW Pharmaceuticals has been licensed to sell that as a drug. And they've been given, because of this little known piece called the Orphan Drug Act, they, are, they have been given what, it isn't a patent, but you can think of it like a patent, They've been given exclusive rights for the next seven years to produce that drug. So no other company can now produce it until they've had their seven years in the market to make back their research development and approval money in theory. So from, from the, the shareholder standpoint, and, and I think you know, the, the, the rescheduling of that one drug, it's, it is, it's a, it's a huge big deal. It's great for the industry down the road, but for right now, it really didn't change anything for the rest of the, the industry. Whether we're talking the regulated marijuana industries, adult use, medical in the states that allow that, or the, as we are right now, almost completely unregulated CBD market, so. Yeah, and, and I, oh, go ahead, Ryan. I'd like to chime in if it's, it's okay. And I'd uh, first say I completely agree with Orion's um, analysis. And I think that the, the FDA is is the, 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 the big bugbear in the whole uh, matter. But I, I wanted to clarify something about the, the, the terminology that I hear a lot, the rescheduling of CBD. Well, I, I think Orion was right on point. He said this, this was the rescheduling of Epidiolex. Um, the CBD compound itself has various regulatory um, statuses, for lack of a better phrase, uh, depending on, on from where it's derived. If it's derived from marijuana, which is a Schedule One substance, um, and all of its compounds are Schedule One substance, then so is the CBD that's derived from it. Um, and that is the reason that Epidiolex was originally Schedule One and needed to be rescheduled or descheduled, as the case may be, and now it's Schedule Five. Um, CBD that's derived from a source, whether it be, you know, typically um, hemp, um, sometimes there's a debate about whether it can be drawn, um, derived from the stalks of the plant or from some other non-cannabis source such as, um, you know, we hear about hops and, and all sorts of uh, other plant materials that are being developed. Um, that CBD is not scheduled at all. And so we really have for one compound a very strange situation in which we have three different statuses, a, a controlled um, status under Schedule 1, a controlled status under Schedule um, 5, and a non-controlled status. And that lends to a lot of the complications that we see and deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So. 
Thanks to you both. And just to add one point to that, um, if, if the CBD comes from non-marijuana, it is not a Schedule One substance. The problem is that the DEA has taken the position time and time again that it is scientifically impossible to get CBD from any other source. And so it's sort of a catch-22 where, yeah, technically if CBD comes from something other than marijuana, we won't treat it as Schedule One, but guess what? We don't believe that's scientifically possible, say the DEA. Um, you laugh, I laugh when I tell clients this all the time, but this is sort of the, the boondoggle that we all find ourselves in on a fairly regular basis. I want to also add one other point about Epidiolex, and that is the specific language that the DEA, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, said when it rescheduled or, or placed Epidiolex on Schedule 5 was that it only applies to FDA-approved drugs containing CBD with no more than 0.1% THC which is Epidiolex, right? That's, that was the code word they used. So that's another point of confusion that people want to understand. Uh, it really is Epidiolex just using a more technical uh, phraseology. Uh, and so CBD otherwise, if, whether, whether it's if it's derived from marijuana, still is on Schedule 1. Um, the other point I just wanted to add is this is not the first time the DEA has taken action with regard to synthetic parts of, of not parts of the plant, but synthetic compounds that are found in the plant. Um, they have previously approved other drugs where THC was made in a lab for, for use in drugs. But this is symbolic because it's the first time that a naturally derived cannabinoid has been descheduled and, and moved off of anything other than Schedule 1. Um, Orion, I want to ask you one other point, and that is, as this process unfolded, there was some back and forth between the FDA and the DEA about what is the proper status of CBD. Where should CBD, from a normative perspective, lie? And if you can just clarify what the FDA has said about this, which I think the audience might find informative. I, to, to boil it all down, the FDA is going to treat you the way that you present yourself. So if you present yourself as a drug, you're going to be treated as a drug and you're going to be expected to meet all the requirements of a drug. So if you make medical claims about your product, then the FDA is going to treat you as if you are a drug. And that's, that's come out clearly from, from the director of the FDA. That, that any products that are, that are out on the market that are making claims are going to be held to that standard as a drug. So that's, that's the first part. And so, so, yeah, the FDA has been very, very clear, although they, they recommend, you know, descheduling, rescheduling, they say that CBD as a compound is, has very limited abuse potential and that it, they have demonstrated that it has these medical um, benefits. All that aside, the FDA has still, is still holding strong that if you are a non-epidiolex CBD product, that you're going to have to jump through the same hoops if you want to be out there um, as on the market as a drug. You're going to have to do what GW Pharmaceuticals did and go through the same process. And that took GW Pharmaceuticals at least seven years to go through that process and a few, few million dollars. So you can understand where GW Pharmaceutical and their shareholders are going to be very interested in protecting their market and making sure that they are going to be able to make back their investment. So, so yeah, the, the FDA's position is definitely that um, it is still a, you're still going to have to jump through those hoops. And, and the, you know, we can talk about dietary supplements and, and, and those rules as well. Um, that's, that's a little bit different than the, the Epidiolex discussion and where the FDA is at. And whether or not the FDA will even let us get away with that, I think it's still an unknown question. Yeah, and we're going we're gonna to talk about dietary supplements and the different product types in just a moment. Um, what I wanted to, what I was hoping we, we can just add here is when the DEA, 
said, okay, now we've approved Epidiolex. We have to figure out what schedule to put it on. They sought feedback from the FDA. And the FDA essentially wrote them a letter and said, what schedule? This shouldn't be on any schedule. There's no medical, there's no abuse potential. There's no physical dependence. Uh, there's clearly medical benefit here. And the DEA came back and said, there's a treaty from 1961 called the United Nations 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs. And we, as the United States, have an obligation under that treaty, which defines uh, extracts of marijuana as a narcotic. If we're going to uh, comply with our obligations under that treaty, we have to keep uh, CBD, as extracted from the marijuana plant, on some schedule. And that's ultimately why Epidiolex was placed as Schedule 5, as opposed to fully descheduling de CBD. I find that very important and, and very, a, a, a very important development, maybe even more important than the placement, the narrow placement of Epidiolex on Schedule 5, because it shows that the FDA is clearly acknowledging what everyone in this room knows, which is that CBD is immensely powerful and has a lot of benefits, and that if our obligations under that fairly esoteric treaty fall away, the FDA's language, not mine, was that, quote, this decision needs to be revised promptly. Right? And so as far as action items that we're going to try to talk today about, what can we do to move this ball forward? Well, if we can get our federal enforcement agents to sort of rethink, or the international community to rethink some of these more arcane uh, treaty obligations, there might be some, some real possibility for movement in our space. So um, I hope that's helpful and makes sense. And obviously, we could talk about it at the end. We're going to open up the panel to some questions. But I think that's an important point to sort of set the groundwork here. One more point about Epidiolex. And that is, um, and this is really for anybody on the panel, do you guys expect to see greater enforcement um, from the DEA, FDA, or even GW now that they have this sort of seven-year quasi-patent right? Well, if I was GW's litigator, I would be sending out warning letters all day, all night, to make sure that I was able to protect my interest in my company. As Orion was <coughs> stating, Going through the FDA and getting this type of approval takes years and years, millions of dollars. Um, it's a very difficult thing to do, and GW is the first one to be able to do it. So I think if you are working in the space and you think you're going to be riding on those coattails, I would strongly caution you, because I'm sure they have just as diligent lawyers as me on their team, and they will be sending out cease and desist, all sorts of different warning letters before they actually uh, come at you for infringing upon all of the investments that they've put into this. So at least from a private litigation standpoint, I would say keep your eyes open, make sure you're not riding on those coattails, and expect them to be fairly litigious about this. Does anyone disagree? I don't disagree. I think that my sense is that GW will be fairly strategic in, I don't believe it's going to send out warning letters. A lot of times lawyers will send out just, you know, fire off tons of, of, of cease and desist letters and sort of shake the tree to see what they can get. I don't anticipate that um, GW will do that. I think that they will identify certain um, groups, ventures that are, are really making drug claims, you know, overtly or, or, or not so overtly, and entering that space. I do think that GW Pharmaceuticals and other pharmaceutical companies that I'm aware of and have, have discussed um, were somewhat taken by surprise, as were a lot of the people in this room, by the CBD and, and hemp industry that, <clears throat> that rapidly, uh, you know, arose in the wake of the 2014 um, Farm Act. 
And so I think that the FDA, GW, um, the, the, the various hemp ventures are sort of figuring out where everyone plays a role. And there are going to be some turf wars. Um, but I, I, and I do believe that GW will probably try to stake out its claim and define its, its barrier. The idea that it would try to sort of take down the industry, I think, A, that the resources to do that are not there for the FDA or even someone as big as, as GW. Um, and also I think there is a certain amount of, of you know, public um, awareness of CBD products and, and there could be some backlash in the event that, that, that it was perceived that GW was trying to completely remove all CBD um, from the market other than Epidiolex. So, and I think it's, it's aware of that. Oh yeah, I don't think it's going to try to remove CBD from the market. I, think, I don't think there's anything we can do to stop this. Frankly, and we'll talk about the Farm Bill, I think 2019 is going to be the year of CBD. But one of the things you are going to see if the 2018 Farm Bill does get signed by Trump and does get approved by the House and the Senate next week is um, I think you're really going to see a huge expansion. I think you're going to see major, major market players get into this. I think you're going to see a lot of the mom and pops falling out. Um, and so one of the things we'd really like to do, or at least I'd like to do while I'm here, is to educate you and empower you so that you can scale, so that you can keep up with this growth that is about to happen at an even higher rate that we've seen already. Um, I personally don't think that GW Pharma is going to go after anyone in the industry. With that being said, it's because Epidiolex is very specific to not only the drug, but also to the diseases that they are claiming to treat. And with respect to that, every single state is going to regulate CBD, whether it's derived from marijuana or industrial hemp, very differently. And so GW Pharma has to be very um, conscientious of how each state is regulating it. And so I, 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 I personally don't believe that they're gonna go after the industry, but I'm the only one that's not an attorney on this panel as well, so <laughs> if that says anything. Which means you should all listen to her very closely. <laughs> and, and you know, I think, uh, I, think, I think there is a sort of PR potential disaster to Rod's point, to Rod's point here, right? If GW is seen as this sort of corporate, you know, this big corporate Behemoth, and they are now going to uh, go after companies, especially some of the mom and pop companies that are going to say, hey, we've been doing this for a long time. It's not a great look for them. And there was some precedent in this space where a drug big pharma companies have come in, gotten an approved uh, application for something that was in the space prior, and then faced a tremendous amount of backlash, both on the consumer level and also from other uh, agencies, and have sort of had to back down. We could talk about that too. I don't want to get too technical and in the weeds on that. Um, I do want to now shift a little bit to, we've mentioned the FDA and sort of how they assess and regulate different product types. Um, Rod, we maybe without getting too technical here because this is a space that causes everyone a lot of confusion, can we maybe talk a little bit about, uh, let's, let me start with foods and sort of the FDA's position on foods containing CBD? Well, I, I mean, I think in a, in a very quick sort of summary, the, the, the FDA's position on CBD, and, and I won't be specific here, and it's something we can address later, on, on CBD isolate, the molecule, uh, is that it cannot be added um, to food products. It is an adulterant, um, it is an investigational new drug, and when, when, an, when an active ingredient in an investigational new drug um, is going through that process or has recently been approved, <coughs> then 
um, it is not allowed to be added to food products. And I joke around with my clients, and this is a way oversimplification, but it kind of drives the point home. You know, if I wanted to start up a manufacturing facility to, to put Ativan in, you know, in applesauce, you can imagine that would be shut down pretty quickly. Um, and again, not, it's an oversimplification, but the fact of the matter is, is that um, CBD is an investigational new drug that's been approved, and it, um, the FDA says you can't add it to food. Now, it's not enforcing that. We can talk about that as well, but that's its position, essentially. And, and would you mind just telling the audience what an investigational new drug means from the FDA's perspective? Sure. It's, it's, a, it's a drug that has been approved for um, to be investigated for certain types of, of um, treatment of certain diseases or, or, um, or functional and structures of the body, or to change or alter structures or functions in the body. And so Epidiolex, um, I believe, was um, put its application in in 2014, although, Orion, you said seven years, but in any event, I, I had in my notes it was 2014. In any event, uh, it took several years. I mean, there's three phases in a typical FDA trial, and, and each phase is, is enormous and comprehensive, and, um, and, and it takes a lot of time and money and resources to do that. Um, but that's, you know, in, in other words, that's investigational new drug is when someone, you know, runs the course of those trials and with the hopes of getting approved as Epidiolex has done. So if, if, if CBD is subject to an IND or an investigational new drug, um, and I can't put that in my food product now, what is sort of, what is the sort of pathway forward for many people in this room and certainly in that hallway that have food with CBD? And are there any arguments or any clever, clever positions that the industry's taken to get around that? Well, there are, there, are, there are two arguments, positions, and then one sort of practical thing. And the practical thing is um, CBD is being added to everything. I mean, I, 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 as we know, and I, I have a very bright um, client who's been very successful in the uh, nutraceutical industry who, who talks about how that, that CBD is, is one of the, the, the significant compounds to humankind and, and says that with, with no um, bit of um, hyperbole and talks about it in, on the context of salt and things like that. And I mean, we're, the, the, gate, the floodgates are open. We're seeing it and everything. That's happening. That doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's legal and or that it complies with the FDA's view of it. So as far as the arguments going forward to, to allow it, um, one is that um, if CBD was actually marketed as, a, as an ingredient in foods uh, prior to uh, the the IND by GW Pharma, uh, then there are some exceptions where it can be added. Um, the FDA's position is that it wasn't marketed in food, and that question is still up in the air. The, the FDA, at least on paper, says that it's open to, to, to viewing evidence that it was marketed and as an ingredient in foods prior to uh, the IND, um, but there hasn't been, frankly, a whole lot of evidence put forward. Um, the other pathway forward is has to do with uh, CBD in the context of of a of a hemp or, or cannabis extract. And I don't want to go too deep in the weeds here now, but I'm happy to if, if that's a. a yeah, I think if, if there's a way, I think that would be helpful. This, is this the, the full spectrum? Sure, I'll talk about the, yeah. So um, there's a little, there's some precedent in the natural foods and nutraceutical industry about this, this issue. So um, it has to do with CBD as being one of the phytonutrients, um, of, you know, in the, in the cannabis plant. I'm using that term very generally as the, really the botanical sense. Um, there are, all, you know, other cannabinoids, there are flavonoids, there are terpenes from any type of a cannabis extract at various levels. And CBD is one of those. There's a precedent from the 90s, and it has to do with a, um, a natural product called red rice yeast. Who here knows red rice yeast or has used it? That's what I figured, about half and half or a third. And so red rice yeast has been used um, for 
potentially thousands of years. There's some evidence that suggests that it has been. Um, and a, one of its properties is that it reduce, reduces cholesterol. It's a preparation of yeast with a rice. And it contains among its constituent components a compound called lovastatin. In the 1980s, Merck um, isolated lovastatin and ran it through the FDA test trials, it was an IND, and got approved. And the approved brand name was Mevacor, it was a cholesterol reducing drug. And during that time period, companies that were making the natural product red rice yeast um, realized that they could amp up their, uh, the efficacy of their products and frankly the marketability of their products by enriching it with red rice yeast. So these products already contained a natural amount of red rice yeast and then they were, um, these companies were enriching it and adding it. Uh, in 1994 I believe um, the FDA stepped in, this is about 10 years after um, it had been approved or roughly, stepped in and seized uh, and prohibited a shipment of lovastatin from coming into Los Angeles uh, for a company called Pharmanex that was making red rice yeast products. Uh, there was litigation ensued and it was actually pretty comprehensive. There were appeals and it, was, it lasted almost four years. And without diving into any of that, the net effect or the practical result of that litigation is that naturally occurring red um, lovastatin that, that, hap that comes in red rice yeast is still allowed. You can buy red rice yeast right now at the health food store that has lovastatin in it. But you can't take the lovastatin molecule and enrich products with it. Pharmanex actually has pulled all the lovastatin out of its products, but there are companies that do this. And so the, the analogy, of course, is between hemp and CBD. If you've got a full-spectrum product that has all of the, the other phytonutrients with naturally occurring levels of CBD, um, then that product is different than a product containing um, CBD isolate, at least based on this precedent. And there are some other issues about what is a naturally occurring and in what concentrations and so on and so forth, but I, you know, I don't want to talk too much on that, but I'm happy to later. I think that's I, I think that's a very helpful context and a distinction because the argument the, that our industry takes is okay, Epidiolex was approved, but it only has CBD, very highly purified CBD. If my food product contains a full spectrum of cannabinoids, including CBD, but any other you know gamut or full spectrum can, uh, cannabis constituent particles, that would be okay, right? That that's the analogy. And you know that is certainly the industry's position. And I think that um, there's already a fair amount of lobbying and legislative efforts uh, among stakeholders that are trying to sort of bring that position to the forefront and are almost waiting for the FDA to, to challenge people and so that they can take that position. Um, the other point that Rod made that I think is really important is the FDA has sort of dared the industry to say, hey, if you're taking the position that this was marketed prior to the NDA for Epidiolex, bring forward the evidence. A lot of clients that we work with take that position and I say that I put it back to them and say if you have if you have the evidence for everyone's sake bring it forward, right? If, um, we've yet to see that. So if there's anyone in this room that can prove that their product has been marketed prior to the IND of Epidiolex, please come see us. This, this is the golden <laughs> ticket. <laughs> yeah, we, we've, we've all been looking for that, that because if we can show that that's true, that it was marketed in any way, shape, or form. And if you go read any of the FDA's warning letters, so if you're curious where we've gotten our understanding of this, if you go read the FDA's warning letters that they published on their website, um, that they sent to Stanley Brothers, which is uh, Charlotte's Web, any, any of those companies that have received warning letters, um, very clearly this is exactly what they're saying, which is we, you know, once, once this was put into the investigation new drug, then it was frozen and you can't do anything with it. 
unless you can show that it was marketed prior to that IND and then it's grandfathered in. That's the one exception. And they talk about that exception. So, so yeah, they, I, I think they do in, in, a, in a way challenge us to find that exception, that golden ticket. Well, let's... I think the question was what about Canada? I, I, it would be arguable at that point if you could show that it was marketed in Canada prior to, and I think it's 2007 is when that IND started, but uh, yeah. It's, so it's, it's been, it's, we have to go back before that. Um, there is that period between HIA 1 and 2 and 2014 when the industrial, um, industrial pilot programs were passed in the Farm Act. Um, that, that there was imported hemp CBD in the market, possibly, and that's, I think, where we'd have to look. But let's be very clear what we're talking about here. So with respect to FDA, they are regulating it federally. You have to take into account how each state is regulating it. FDA is in communication with any state that has, say, an industrial hemp program, or a marijuana program and just watching to see what's going on. They're not prohibiting or preventing any of these compounds to be introduced into food as a delivery device as, or not even a delivery device, just as a way to <coughs> deliver it into you know, someone's diet, right? FDA is not taking that stance. If you read those warning letters, they are very specific to health benefit claims, um, economic fraud, um, mislabeling, misbranding, which is what they would regulate regardless of what that product was. So let's be very clear what we're talking about here. You want to bring in FDA. FDA currently is not regulating CBD or marijuana or industrial hemp. Okay? Um, I, I, would, uh, I would agree with what Rod was saying with respect to, you know, full spectrum versus isolate and epidiolex. But the only drug that's been approved with CBD is epidiolex. And it's only for those very specific diseases. Let's be, let's just remind, I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but you know, you're, you're trying to apply what FDA did with respect to Epidiolex to the entire industry. And that's not what's happening here. So I, I just want to make that clear distinction. And I, I think that, that Tui brings up a really good point, and that is the state level um, regulation. And again, this is not going away with the passage of the 2018 um, Farm Bill. In fact, it probably will make things more complex because just by nature, the fact that we're going to have a lot more players in the, in the game. But states are either regulating or not. Um, I had, a, had a, an interaction with the Commissioner of Agriculture in, in my home state of North Carolina and the Industrial Hemp Commissioner. I had a client that had, had built out a beautiful um, uh, CGMP facility for, um, for processing hemp and CBD and, and extracts. And we went to the commissioner and said, we, we, wa we want you to come and inspect us. That's, we, we would like to engage you. And it, the, the look in their eye was one of sort of deer caught in the headlights. They, <laughs> they, um, most states, um, agriculture departments, departments of health work very closely with the FDA and tend to go with the FDA's line or at the very least don't want to interfere with their good relationship with the FDA. And they said, we would love to see it, but we're not coming. We're not going to inspect it. We don't regulate this space. And, you know, for a while that's been, I think, somewhat helpful to the industry to, to get it going, but it, we're, we're at a stage here that, you know, the role of the FDA, the role of state, state health departments is to ensure that food products and, and, and nutraceutical products and so on and so forth are safe and are unadulterated. And so this is, be, this is coming to a head, I think, pretty rapidly. You, you just glossed over something really quick, Rod. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about CGMP. 
Yeah, sure, go ahead. I mean, you, you, you went there, but, okay, so, 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 so the, that, that is what is required for a dietary supplement. The FDA is going to require, if you're going to be in the dietary supplement world, you're going to have to comply with, with the, the current general manufacturing processes, best, best, basically best practices for manufacturing a dietary supplement. You're going to have to comply with those if you're going to be in the space once this becomes a regulated market. Right now it's an unregulated market, and, and if, if you don't, should I jump in on the ADA and why? It's sure, unregulated? sure. Okay. So, so the reason why it's an unregulated market right now is that under the Appropriations Act right now, industrial hemp is protected. So anything that is being produced in the industrial hemp field, any, any of the products that are, that are being grown and then processed and marketed in the, in the industrial hemp field are protected because after the 2014 Farm Act was passed, Congress also passed in the budget, in the Continuing Appropriations Act, and I would gloss you all over if I went into the difference between appropriations and all the different ways that money is spent. But the bottom line is you can't spend taxpayer dollars without an affirmative um, okay from Congress. So, so what Congress has said is that, you, that all the federal agencies, and they've specifically targeted the DEA and Department of Justice, but all federal agencies that receive federal funds, which, oh, by the way, that also includes all states that receive federal funds, are prohibited from interfering with the transportation, processing, sale, or consumption of industrial hemp, those products that are brought out of industrial hemp, in the state in which it's produced and within any other state. So the reason why you have this unregulated bubble we're in right now is not because the FDA thinks it's okay or the DEA thinks it's okay, <laughs> it's because they are prohibited, their hands are tied, and this is a very thin shield right now that's protecting the market. Once that, that bubble is burst, and if that, that's why every time the Appropriations Act is back up for in Congress, we go, we're all looking to make sure that rider is still in there. Doesn't it expire today? <laughs> I think it does, it does yeah. It does. <laughs> <laughs> It, it does, but I think the uh, I think President Trump and Congress have agreed, in light of uh, President Bush's passing, to give two a two week extension so they can try to pass the farm bill. And we keep getting these short sort of bumps, you know. We get we we'll get it continued for six months or three months or two weeks or, or whatever it is. So. Yeah. And shield. And I would agree with what Orion was saying, but let's let's qualify his statement here federally. Okay, he's talking federally. We're not talking about the state. We can't say that this is not a regulated. Um, industry because it's highly dependent upon the state. S again, states that have industrial hemp programs have a Department of Agriculture that does regulate the cultivation of the industrial hemp. In Colorado, and again, I can't really speak for other states, but in Colorado, the state health department who does receive federal funding does regulate and does inspect industrial hemp operations for good manufacturing practices. That's what CGMP is, current good manufacturing practices. It is not specific to dietary supplements. It's not specific to food. It's specific to processing of any sort of commodities that will be consumed by humans and or animals or applied topically. So let's just, let's look at what FDA regulates. They regulate medical devices. They regulate drugs, cosmetics, food, and in some parts, you know, um, labeling, obviously, and animal food, okay? Um, so when, when we're making these broad statements saying it's unregulated, we need to say federally or statewide or in this state. So let's, let's just be very clear when we're making those types of statements because it is a regulated industry. It's very specific to the state. Or if you want to say generally, yes, federally it's not regulated, okay, I, I will agree with that.
Tweet, and, tweet makes a good point on, and just as Washington has another state that has an industrial hemp pilot program, we only have two licensees in Washington, and the reason why we only have two licensees in our industrial hemp pilot program, and I don't know that they've even produced anything, I haven't heard that they've produced anything, is because our industrial hemp pilot program in Washington only allows the processing of the seeds for human consumption and specifically precludes you from processing that hemp for CBD. So there's really no, there's no mark marketing for that. Now, oddly, our state legislature has now approved um, statutes that allow you to import industrial hemp CBD from Colorado and from Oregon and to put it into our regulated marijuana products to increase the level of CBD in our regulated marijuana products. But they've also said that you can't sell it in other places. So, so we're, we'll see. I mean, it just came out last week that, they, that they, the LCB's position is that we, the only way you can use that industrial hemp that's being imported into the state is to, is to infuse it into a regulated marijuana product. So I would be very interested to see what the outcome of that is because interstate commerce is regulated by the FDA, yeah. okay? So you should not be importing from other states. Um, Colorado has a very, again, very progressive industrial hemp program and not specific to Colorado, but if you look and the states that do have industrial hemp programs will give you limitations as to what can and cannot be done. Just because your state has an industrial hemp program does not allow for you to produce uh, you know, or grow hemp for CBD. It may be that it's very specific to research that is specific to universities only. It may allow for the commercial um, production, manufacturing, and distribution of the product. So it, it's very dependent upon the state is, is what I want to come across. I'll, I'll piggyback on that. It's, I, the, the state by state patchwork is, is, is an enormous amount of the work that I know that I do. And, and you know, to Orion's point, um, and, 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 and strangely, I think a lot of times the states that are, are most difficult for my clients in the CBD space to enter are the rec states. And that's uh, for different, different reasons, but a lot of times there's, there's this sort of um, focus on the, on the rec and, and the rec program and, 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 and regulations. Um, and, and they don't want to deal with the, uh, with the industrial hemp side of, of CBD or vice versa. Sometimes there is, is um, play between the two. But I, I like to sort of at the present time talk about how there are essentially four different categories of, of states. There are states with, with robust industrial hemp um, programs that, uh, that, that explicitly allow for the, the you know, in, uh, 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 CBD and, and CBD products and development and importation and exportation. There are industrial hemp states that don't, or at least are silent on the issue in such a way that it appears that they don't like it. Um, there are states that do not have industrial hemp programs and have explicitly stated that they will prosecute um, and have prosecuted. South Dakota, I think, is, is a notable one um, for um, hemp-derived CBD. And then there are states that do not have industrial hemp programs uh, that um, seem to tolerate um, CBD. And Georgia and Texas are notable. Texas has some has prosecuted off and on, but has also had roundups and, and, and then allowed stores to restock. And I'm glossing over a few different things here because I don't want to sort of take over this, the state piece, but I think the state piece that, that Twee um, brought up is, is extremely important right now. We're going to have some remedy to that with the 2018 uh, Farm Bill, um, if and when, presumably when it's enacted, um, because it will explicitly make cannabinoids from hemp lawful throughout the country. 
country, but we will still have regulations that implement the statute, and states have the option, if they wish, to, to write those regulations and to control hemp and, and cannabinoids from hemp within their borders, um, as long as they comply with the federal requirements, which frankly are, are, are not very many. So we are still gonna see regulation on a state-by-state -state basis. And I, want, I just wanna, because in the interest of time moving this forward, um, I wanna just summarize sort of, I think Twee's point is, is right on. The, what's really happening on the ground here is state regulation. FDA, everything we've discussed about the FDA is absolutely true. Interstate commerce is within their purview. So all of the drugs, uh, food products, dietary supplements, that is within the purview of the FDA once it crosses state borders and even under the FDA's position if any constituent part of those products um, has crossed interstate borders. But right now, the, 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 the regulatory landscape that we're seeing in effect, because the FDA has really taken a hands-off approach to enforcing its laws, is on the state level. And I think that Colorado has, if not the most robust and sophisticated program, one of the most robust and sophisticated programs. And Twee, if you can just, for a couple, just share your thoughts a little bit on what that looks like. And also, I, I want to, at the end, make sure we talk about the extent to which you think it might conflict with current federal law. So in Colorado, in July of 2017, um, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment announced their industrial hemp program or policy. Um, it's a policy because it allows for them to make the necessary changes as they do their due diligence and better understand the industry and the uses for industrial hemp in all of its components. Um, and so there are very specific requirements with respect to um, complying with the industrial hemp program, one being that it needs to be, uh, it needs to meet the standard of identity. So the standard of identity of industrial hemp is less than 0.3% THC, right? That's in line with the federal definition. Um, in addition to that, any finished products also have to meet that standard of identity. Um, for labeling uh, constituents, you have to look at making sure that you are identifying hemp as an ingredient on your label. If you have uh, CBD, which you will, you need to identify CBD and its potency on your label. You have to ensure that you have a statement, and it's a very general statement, indicating that FDA has not, you know, um, I can't remember the exact verbiage right now, but basically FDA hasn't approved or hasn't uh, verified the efficacy of this, this product. Um, and then also ensuring that any of the industrial hemp that you will be extracting comes from a regulated, um, they're, very, they're very general in what they say, um, because you know that attorneys probably drafted it, but basically what it says is that it has to come from a state that has uh, a regulated industrial hemp program, or a country, and when they say that, um, it, it, there aren't any other states currently that have you know, an industrial hemp program like Colorado. So they're basically saying it has to come from a Colorado source. So there are certain requirements um, that Colorado is, re is, is requesting that the industry comply with, and they've been watching it over the last year, year and a half now, just to see how it further evolves. Um, in addition to all of everything that I indicated, you also have to be able to show proof that you meet that standard of identity for your finished product. So let's, let's remember that when you're cultivating the Colorado Department of Agriculture or Department of Agriculture, assuming that your state has an industrial hemp program, has every right to test your product to make sure that it complies, right? So if you don't meet that standard of identity for the dry weight basis of less than 0.3% THC, then you could potentially lose your entire crop. 
um, in Colorado, if you exceed the 0.3% THC, guess what? You're lo losing that entire harvest. You're burning that field. Anything that exceeds 1% uh, is going to be a criminal penalty. Right now in Colorado, we have the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, Colorado Department of Agriculture, and also the Marijuana Enforcement Division that is creating a work group so that they can have conversations with respect to any sort of uh, plant material that exceeds the 0.3% THC because um, it's considered marijuana at that point, right? So what can we do to help resolve that at that point? Can we divert it into a uh, into the marijuana space where it's going to be regulated like marijuana, where we have the metric tracking system and we are able to monitor it from basically seed to sale, or is it something that's gonna be burnt to the ground like what they're doing right now? So that's, that's kind of what's happening right now. It's very new, but um, in Colorado, that, it, as long as you comply with that industrial hemp program, then you're fine. Um, are they inspecting us? Absolutely, they are coming in. They're in, um, and when I say they, Colorado Department of Agriculture inspects the cultivation of it, so they will inspect your farms. Um, as soon as uh, it's harvested and processed at the farm, at that point, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment will actually inspect, and they can inspect you um, based on good manufacturing practices. They can inspect the storage. They can inspect your processing, making sure that you're using pro uh, solvents that are approved for food production. Um, Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment is not indicating that CBD or industrial hemp is a food. What they are doing is they are regulating it like a food, like a dietary supplement, because in Colorado we regulate both dietary supplements and food very similarly in, in that you have to follow good manufacturing practices. Um, and so yeah, that's basically what we do in Colorado. Great. I mean, they're not looking at it any differently than any other commodity that's being produced, just making sure that it's going to be safe for human consumption, making sure that you meet, meet that standard of identity. <coughs> um, we all know that when you extract products or extract whether it be marijuana or hemp, you will exceed that 0.3% THC. We are all very well aware of that. But as long as your finished products meet that standard of identity, you are perfectly fine, right? But you have to keep control of that product. You can't be selling your oil. You can't be selling any of your full spec oils because it doesn't meet the standard of identity. Can you contract you know, with a contract manufacturer to produce other products for you? Absolutely. But you cannot sell that oil because it's not being tracked and it's not marijuana. Or it, I mean, technically it is, but you know, you're producing it and deriving it from industrial hemp. Thanks, Twee. Sure. And, and I, know, I know that we're not in Colorado right now, although I'm sure many of you in the room might either be in Colorado or thinking about doing business in Colorado. But the reason I think it's so important to bring it up is it is, like I said, one of the most, if not the most, sophisticated uh, program in place right now. And I think it's one that um, the federal government uh, may in some way be looking to uh, with its minimum standards under, under the 2018 Farm Bill, which is going to be our final topic for today. And I want to turn that over to Heidi. Um, the 2018 Farm Bill is really, in my, in my view, probably the most historic development uh, in hemp since George Washington grew it uh, on his farm 200 years ago, or maybe even more. Uh, but I, I think everyone is understandably a little bit confused about what it means and what it doesn't mean. And Heidi is an expert on this. So um, Heidi, if you can just give some high-level overview points about what, what the 2018 Farm Bill is going to mean and when you think it'll pass. Sure. Um, yeah, and Jefferson was a big hemp guy too. We really do have a tradition of hemp in this country. Um, 
And it wasn't until we started seeing a lot of these drug laws that we got marijuana really absorbed into the CSA. And so we're really only undoing about 100 years of bad work. Um, and this plan has been around for thousands of years. So it's very exciting to see where we're going right now. And like I said earlier, I really predict that 2019 is going to be the year of CBD. Here in the United States, and I'm sure as everybody else on this panel um, is aware, we're being hit up by international companies all the time to figure out how they can get their product into our, you know, our system here in the United States. I know I'm a really big uh, fan of domestic supply, but like we're talking about, once the 2018 Farm Bill does expand, we're gonna see a huge, these huge market players move into our market, and one of the biggest issues is going to be scalability. And one of the biggest things is going to be where they're going to be sourcing that hemp from. And while we have seen huge growth in conversions of farms to hemp farms here in the United States, based on current predictions of the 400% growth, I'm sorry, 4,000% growth that we're gonna see over the 200% growth that we saw in just the last year, we're gonna really need to get some people online and really work with um, producing some domestic sources. So the way that the 2018 Farm Bill let me just give a little bit of information. The 2018 Farm Bill was being debated earlier this year. It missed the, the Senate did not pass it by the deadline on September 30th. So we've kind of been in this weird period where there is no active Farm Bill. However, the hemp protections that we're all discussing were codified in the law. So they did not expire along with the Farm Bill. What the 2018 Farm Bill will do, the one that was being proposed and debated previously in September, because that's all we've been able to see so far. What we found out just last week was that there's some members of the Agricultural Committee who said, we've effectively reached an agreement between the House and the Senate. Now, obviously, with the funerals this last week, there's been a little bit of disruption of Congress. So we haven't actually seen what this final bill is going to look like. But based on some of the comments that we've heard from the Congress and some of the things that we saw as problematic earlier in this year, we can make some certain predictions. So I wanna just call out some of those predictions that we've made based on kind of this congressional intent and this procedural history. So the first thing that I wanna talk about relates to these states' rights. And uh, we're not sure that when the 2018 Farm Bill comes online, we're not sure whether or not the Farm Bill will implement a hemp program for all 50 states or, like it's currently written under the 2014 bill, the states will have to opt in. So we don't know how that will function, that will affect interstate commerce, that will affect transportation, sourcing, all sorts of different things. So that's a really big thing to look out for, is if it's going to apply to the states categorically or if the states will have to opt in. And you're gonna to wanna to see where you're producing and operating from and make sure you're in one of those opt-in states if that's what they require. The second thing that it's really gonna do is it's gonna just create an entire CBD ecosystem. We're talking about everything from insurance you can now get for your crops, banking will open up, transportation and online sales will open up, uh, marketing, uh, Facebook and Instagram, as I, I'm sure many of you know, have a very, very prohibited, uh, prohibitive UI for all of us who want to promote these products, so that will likely change. And then on a federal level, you'll be able to protect your brand through trademarks in ways that are more robust than what we're doing now for your brands. So that whole ecosystem will truly explode. So that's one of the main things that's going to happen with, it's kind of the overview of the 2018 bill, which is why I say 2019 is going to be the year of CBD. Now, 
one of the things I really want to call out about the states is that under the bill that was being debated earlier this year, you know, the states were, the current bill as it was being debated over the summer and throughout the fall was going to have the states have to opt in. So I anticipate seeing an opt-in situation. What the states are gonna have to do is come up with what they've called in the bill a plan. I can't come up with a more general word <laughs> for them to use, right? We don't know what this plan is going to be. We don't know what the requirements are going to be. But the states will have to comply with those requirements. And then, like we were talking about, the enforcement will really shift to the states, unless you're going into interstate commerce and things like that. So it's really important to think about what you think your plan for your state is going to look like. And we've talked about Colorado. And in Washington, actually, on December 1st, we just opened up our licensed producers and processors to buy CBD from non-licensed sources. So it, it's kind of a halfway move that uh, was really trying to remedy the fact that the 2018 bill didn't pass in September, but Washington really wants to get into the CBD market. And Washington is actually being more permissive than a lot of the things that we've seen under the FDA, where Washington is allowing you to go and buy just the CBD and put it into your product and sell it to people to eat and enhance your product that way. So we'll see if that plan will have to change under the 2018 Farm Bill. I mean, the law will only be in place for two weeks. You can see how rapidly this is changing. But that 2018 bill will really affect the states based on their plans. That's my personal prediction. Um, and one of the other things that I really want to bring up that's uh, close to my heart, and I know a lot of people in this room too, is uh, the socioeconomic disadvantages that certain persons have experienced over the years as a result of our drug laws. And one of the things that we're seeing in the 2018 Farm Bill that wasn't in the debate until the very end was this restriction on people who have drug felonies from participating in the industry. So one of the first things you're gonna have to think if you're getting into this industry is do I qualify? Do I have a drug-related felony? And I will tell you that a lot of poorer persons and persons of color have those uh, convictions because it is indisputed and you can take a look at our blog. I cite all of these facts. People of color are arrested for cannabis crimes at four times the rate as white persons who are in the same location. So I think what you're seeing, if this drug-related felony restriction is in the 2018 Farm Bill, it's a throwback to prohibition. It's a throwback to uh, really outdated drug laws that I hope that we'll see uh, move forward in the future. But it is something that you should be aware of if you've been in this industry for a while, if you've got the experience and the expertise and all sorts of things you can add to the market, you're not allowed to if you've ever been arrested. So that was under the, 20, that was under the version that was being debated in September. Now we've all done a little bit of research on this and we've kind of been able to get bits and pieces of statements from Congress. And so what we've heard is, quote, there is a compromise on this original language in the new bill. So there is something about felony laws in the new bill. Someone told us they're not free to provide details. Someone else said there's a lot of discussion about that, but neither side got what they wanted. So what we were all discussing was there's probably going to be some sort of uh, compromise with respect to drug-related drug felonies. And what we're predicting is you'll see a lot of what you've seen in Colorado, California, and Washington, where if your drug-related felony is five, eight, 10 years old, and you haven't had a new conviction since then, you might be able to get around this provision and enter into the industrial hemp program. But like I said, we haven't actually seen 
the final bill. So in terms of timeline, uh, like I said, on November 29th, the House and Senate agricultural leaders told us that they had basically reached a deal because of some of the problems that have happened throughout this last week. They have indicated that they will be releasing that, they will be filing it, so making it part of the public record on Monday, like this Monday. And then they could be voting on this in the Senate as soon as Wednesday. So we're talking December 12th, just a week from now. Um, and then it could be through, conceivably, if it's already agreed upon, it could be through the Senate by the end of Thursday. And then it goes to the president. And yeah, I'm, I didn't really think about how I was gonna approach this. Um, but so generally, a president has the right to either sign the bill into law or they can not sign it and they can effectively veto it or they can pocket veto it, which means they do nothing, and 10 days later, if Congress is in session, the bill becomes law. But it's kind of the way for the president to express his displeasure. Um, in this case, President Trump said in June he probably supports the hemp activity in Congress. So if I had to make my best guess, I would say that we could see this signed into law as early as December 21st, two Fridays from this past Friday. So we are seeing some rapid, rapid action. Please come talk to us if you want to talk about getting ready to participate in the market when that does happen. One other, one other really important point about 2018 Farm Bill, sorry Rod, is this is key. Um, it will amend the Controlled Substances Act to specifically remove hemp and all of its extracts from Schedule One classification. So whereas Epidiolex, as we started the talk, was uh, the Epidiolex the rescheduling of Epidiolex was limited essentially only to FDA-approved drugs. The Farm Act, the 2018 Farm Bill, would apply to all CBD derived from hemp, and I think that is, if not the most, one of the most important parts of the 2018 Farm Bill. And Heidi went into some of the nuances, but of course that was on the top of her list as well. I think we are close to time, but Rod, I think you might have had one more point, and feel free to. It's actually a question, Heidi, and I appreciate your review of, of the 2018 um, Farm Bill. It's, as, as Heidi said, we don't know what the final version looks like. Um, we've seen the original version. We've heard rumors. You had said, Heidi, that um, states can opt in, and I agree with that. They can choose to regulate within their borders if they submit a plan that's approved. And so my reading is that if a state chooses not to submit a plan, or it submits a plan that's ultimately rejected on in whatever mechanism that, that's set out to do that, that it's still lawful, and by it I mean hemp and its derivatives, in the state it's just regulated federally versus the state. Is that your reading as well? Yes, it is. Um, yes, but to the extent, you know, without getting into too much of a debate here, to the extent of whether or not CBD is actually properly labeled as a Schedule One drug is even a debate in light of the 2014 Farm Bill. Because in the HIA case, the Ninth Circuit stepped in and they couldn't give us all the relief we wanted in the hemp industry. But one of the things they did say is that anything the DEA does that contradicts the Farm Bill, even the 2014 Farm Bill, is preempted. It has no force in law. So there is an argument that ever since 2014, that CSA distinction applicable to CBD has no force in law. The Ninth Circuit, the Court of Appeal said that. The only court that can overturn that is the Supreme Court. So I really do think that there are some additional protections that exist there. Do I think the 2018 Farm Bill will resolve that? No, but I think it will kind of release some of the tension between the federal and the state departments as to who has responsibility for this, who should be enforcing 
And I think once the states are able to opt in and submit their plan, the federal government will be delegating a lot of kind of basic sure. enforcement activities. It's agricultural. I mean, the USDA will, will be enforcing it versus the DEA. The DEA right now, it's sort of, in a, in, as you mentioned, in a gray sort yeah. of area that the Ninth Circuit said the, the, this, um, the Agricultural Act preempts right. the Controlled Substances Act, which in other words means it, it controls, it, it trumps it, to use a term, um, yeah. the, the Controlled Substances yeah. Act. So right, so hemp is not a controlled substance, but it's in this gray zone of who, yeah. who regulates. I think the 2018, at least as we've read it, will say the USDA governs it as an agricultural um, product rather than a controlled substance or something else. Exactly. I, I agree. I think that'll be the primary function is that we will take the, the 2018 Farm Bill will take this. 2014 laid the groundwork, but this 2018 Farm Bill will make it so that this product is considered an agricultural product and the CSA and the drug laws that formerly applied to it will no longer be applicable. We'll almost be starting anew as we've discussed and how we'll be regulating this with these right. new departments. Okay, let, let's open the floor to some questions. Um, are you guys are okay to stick around for a few more moments, I assume, the panel? Okay, great. Um, I saw your hand first, sir. Quick question. Uh, we talked the WHO meeting in November with the ECCD. I mean, that's a big impact as well to let people know about that as well. Yeah, sure. So World, uh, World Health Organization uh, is sort of taking on the, the task of whether or not CBD should be uh, fully descheduled. Um, what's the latest? Uh, what's the, have you guys? What's the latest you guys have seen on Isn't that? Is there a UN meeting that's going to address that right happening right now or, or less? But there's one that's I think going on right now or about to happen in Vienna. It's not. The, is it today? Okay, oh, wow. right. And it's and it's the UN and, and, and one of the as I understand it the the things that are being discussed is cannabis in general and, and CBD in particular. So yeah, this is all. I don't know the answer to your question. I apologize. But as far as these things are being discussed at the international level as we speak now. So. And the DEA does have a public comment period out right now on completely descheduling cannabis. Don't know where that's going to go. It hasn't been very well, um, uh, put, it hasn't been you know, put out to the public or socialized real well. But there is a public comment period open right now for completely descheduling cannabis. So and please comment because the Ninth Circuit was not able to give us our relief that we wanted in the HIA case in March because nobody commented. They said, we agree with all of your arguments, but you didn't timely raise them. So we can't give you release on that basis. So if you've got time to shoot an email, that's literally all we need. Just put it in the record. Uh, please. I have three questions. I'll start with the, uh, the state. You said that if the farm bill is passed, CBD will be deregulated. Descheduled. Hemp-derived CBD. Industrial hemp, yeah. So why does the state have to then have a plan? Doesn't it become just like any other commodity which will come under its jurisdiction protection? It, it could. That could be something that they choose to do. But I think the structure that they're going to impose is this opt-in program. But sure, we could see that now. We could see that down the future. But I think for now, it's going to be opt-in. The, the, the latest language on the 2018 Farm Bill, the one that we've actually seen, says that, yes, um, hemp and all of its extracts are going to be descheduled, but they'll still be regulated like crops. And the status is, at least in the, in the, in the most recent version, is states can choose to make the, be the primary driver of those regulations as long as they comply with minimal federal standards. If they decide not to, it's the USDA that's gonna do it. The, the, big, the big piece that has to be done in the state is going to be testing that for the 0.3 THC. That's, that, that's why it has to be, the pl a plan has to be put in by the state and they have to be able to test it to make sure. Now, again, the most recent um, draft that I've read says that if you exceed that 0.3 THC, there's no civil or criminal penalties for that. Which is very interesting. It's it's and and if you negligently grow hemp 
outside of the state's plan, negligently grow it, there's no civil or criminal penalties for that either. The only requirement is, is that you then work with the state to get, a, to get within the state's plan. And possibly if you've done that enough times over the years, you could be prohibited from participating for a few years. But yeah, it's the, if, if we get what we've seen, there, it's going to be a very liberalization of, this, of the hemp and CBD market. I can speak to that. Um, we're talking about um, hemp flower, like the buds of the hemp are actually becoming a thing. To people in recreational states, this may be a surprise. In, in the southeast, it's, it's huge. Um, and so the question is, is that lawful? Well, it depends on the state law. At the federal level, industrial hemp is, um, is lawful. It is, um, as, as we discussed... No, no, it's industrial hemp is, is the cannabis plant grown pursuant to a state's pilot program that contains delta-9 THC concentrations that do not exceed 0.3%. And that's it. Those are the two elements. And when those elements are met, that's a lawful product. And under, under federal law, it can be transported across state lines. In fact, there was a case just last month involving the post office. That case involved CBD, which is actually a more complex step to enter, enter, you know, to enter, enter the process here. But, um, but it was CBD derived from hemp, and, the, and the, the case said that these products can be um, mailed and they can enter into interstate commerce. What Orion spoke about earlier with the Appropriations Act, the, the, it says specifically and explicitly that these products can be transported, sold, and used across state lines. Now, with the flower, the, the specific issue has to do, again, with state law. Um, some states allow it. There's no prohibition on flour. There are actually robust markets in the flour. Some states that allow, have industrial hemp programs, um, you can't sell flour there. And, and just as an example, just talk, what I'm talking about, Kentucky has, has a, you know, it was one of the, I think it might have been the first state to enact industrial hemp uh, reform and, and the pilot program. But it defines industrial hemp by, you know, the grown under pilot program, THC levels um, no more than 0.3% in possession of a registered grower. And so it's legal until it changes hands to someone who doesn't have that registration. And so for that reason, the flower can't be sold. And so every state's different. And, um, and I have clients all the time calling, you know, what states can I sell flower in? And that's just a new and emerging issue. And that will change and develop as the 2018 change develops. I, I actually think, and again, just because I have the, the fiscal law background with the ADA, I think that any of those state prohibitions could be challenged under that. Yeah. And so you, if, if you had a state that was trying to regulate industrial hemp CBD that you were buying from Colorado or from Kentucky or from Oregon, and you're bringing it into your state and the state was trying to interfere with that, I think you could challenge that interference. It just hasn't been tested in court. And that's, that's where you, know, you, have, you might have laws out there on the books, but they may not be enforceable as they're written if, if a lawyer and a client has enough money to fight that. Um. In the back, uh, yeah, with the hat, the, you with the hat, sorry. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, one of the things I can speak on to that issue is in Washington, the federal government hasn't expressly addressed the synthetic, but I can tell you that in states where the states are ahead of the federal government, particularly these new laws that were 
um, you know, put forward in, in uh, Washington, there is expressed and repeated provisions that absolutely any synthetic THC is <coughs> prohibited. If you even have a trace of it during your, your testing and your traceability requirements and any of that, all of the lots in Washington that were grouped together, whether or not they had that bad uh, test result, will have to be destroyed. Washington is taking no, playing no games with any sort of participant who even touches synthetic CBD. So to the extent that that would inform what the federal government would do, and I think other people can speak to that better, I think you would see some serious uh, prohibitions and it will be considered a completely different category. <laughs>